You've heard of Grammarly, and you might think it's a fancy spell check, but people on your team have been using it and loving it for years because it does way more than you realize. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that works seamlessly across apps and websites and can write an instant first draft in a few clicks, not a few hours. When every word your team writes is clear, concise and on brand, companies can save 19 days per employee per year. Learn what better writing can do for your company at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Collaborate for a greener future at the Bloomberg Green Festival, a groundbreaking celebration of the thinkers, doers, and innovators leading the way. From design and culture to technology, science, and entertainment. Hear from inspirational speakers and immerse yourself in climate solutions, July 10th through 13th in Seattle. Title sponsor, Amazon. Official airline, Alaska Airlines. Get 20% off using promo code RADIO20 at BloombergLive.com slash GreenFestival. From the heart of where innovation, money, and power collide, in Silicon Valley and beyond, this is Bloomberg Technology with Emily Chang. Check in San Francisco, and this is Bloomberg Technology. Coming up in the next hour, Russia's invasion gets more brazen and more bloody. A children's hospital and maternity ward, the latest target in the Ukrainian port town of Mariupol. This after a Ukrainian official says they're open to meeting Russia's demands for neutrality, but only if there's an immediate ceasefire. Plus, Bitcoin bounces back as President Biden signs an executive order on digital assets. We'll break down what's in that plan and what it means for the future of cryptocurrency. And Amazon soaring after hours. The company's board approves a 20-for-1 stock split. What it means later this hour. Thousands are trapped in towns surrounding Kyiv as Russian forces continue to encroach on the capital. They're running out of food and other essential items as they wait days upon days for a safe exit. Take a listen. Жизни. 
And as more people attempt to leave Ukraine or find shelter within the country, it is of the essence to keep communication channels open so humanitarian aid can get to those who need it most. MessageBird is helping keep businesses connected across Ukraine and is now being used to coordinate and meet a broad range of needs from getting SIM cards to people along with supplies like medicine, blankets, and even transportation from place to place. Founder and CEO Robert Viss with me now for more on how his company is doing all of this work. Now, as I understand it, Robert, you work with all of the major social channels, WhatsApp, Instagram, Telegram, what kinds of communications are you seeing between businesses, between customers and businesses in Ukraine specifically? Hi, Emily, and thank you for having me um, on the show. Um, look, before MessageBird was being used primarily for omnichannel B2B communications, um, today we're seeing a lot of NGOs, communities um, uh, using us for all sorts of help. Um, as you said, it can be simple things from organizing, coordinating medicines, uh, uh, blankets, transportation. Um, we're just trying to provide our services to as many businesses as possible at the moment to, to help out. So what does that mean? How are you supporting these businesses who have these flood, this flood of requests at this time? Well, several different ways. Um, I mean, one, we're just, I mean, as a company, we provide uh, customer service tooling, so different ways for, for people to coordinate on top of our platform. So we're obviously providing that for free now to 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 to, to those companies, uh, businesses. But this isn't just businesses, to be honest. It's um, just as much just people trying to help out. I mean, if you think about it, it's about 2 million refugees have now come into Europe. Um, so a lot of people are trying to help out in different ways, and we're trying to, to, to coordinate as quickly as possible. Um, at the same time, we, we launched our own fund um, uh, to help out, so our employees are helping out. Um, I'm trying to organize other tech founders to come together, and, and all of us use our uh, knowledge companies um, um, to, to try to lend a hand in this terrible situation. So this $10 million NGO fund that you mentioned, what's your hope about how this will help? Look, the fund is broader. Um, um, uh, we're looking to, the, to to deploy the capital in the next two years. Um, but, you know, right now it's needed as much as ever. Um, so we're trying to do anything we can um, uh, um, for, for, the, for the community. I think more broadly... Uh, um, than the money. What we're really trying to do is just stand up. I think it's important for CEOs, founders to speak up. Um, I think the um, technology sector is uniquely positioned to help out. Um, we've all built amazing companies that we can do stuff with. Um, you know, I'm working together with, for example, one of the in the Netherlands, the founder of Bunk, which is an online bank. Um, uh, he's doing amazing work trying to get refugees now uh, bank accounts so so that we can coordinate money, something simple, because obviously their bank accounts in Ukraine don't uh, actually work anymore. Or the founder of Picnic, which is an online supermarket um, who has you know all sorts of supply chain and logistics to, to, to coordinate funds. I think it's initiatives like that that where we're really focused um, uh, to try to help out. Well, speaking of standing, standing up, this clampdown that we've seen on services across Russia, we've seen a number of companies take a stand. Do you have any exposure in Russia? Are you cutting off any of your services to Russian businesses and users? Yeah, we have um, uh, pretty much immediately. Uh, um, look, I'll be honest, it's it's 4% of our revenue. So it's, it's you know, it's uh, uh, we're a $500 million company. It's significant, but it's not um, it's, it's not going to kill our, uh, kill our business. Um, but I think anything that we can do um, globally to to say no um, and to stand for peace, I think is important. Um, obviously, I would say that the Russian people inside the country have absolutely nothing to do with this. Um, so it's sad for them, too. 
Um, at the same time, it's, I guess, the only peaceful protest that we can do is by stopping services to, uh, to, to the Russian community. Right. Now, I know you're joining us from Amsterdam. You do have a team in Ukraine. How big is that team? How are they doing? What is the situation there, and how are you helping them? We and have a very big team in Ukraine. Um, luckily, all of our employees are outside of the country. Um, uh, we were able to get them out pretty quickly, um, but they still have family there. Um, so, uh, uh, so far, as far as I know, everybody is is doing okay considering the circumstances. Um, but uh, it's 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 horrifying. I mean, we have families where like you literally hear the air alarms go off. Um, I don't know how you call it in English, but the, the and you know it's just the. Uh, it's it's 2022 and we're having a war at the borders of Europe. It's crazy. Air sirens, common sound now across the country. All right, founder and CEO of Message Burb, Robert Viss. Thank you for joining us and sharing the work that you're doing there. Coming up, Amazon soaring in late trading after the company says the board approved a 20 for one stock split. Details on that next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks, like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said, done. Amazon splits its stock, sending shares soaring. This as the e-commerce giant announced it will stop sending products to Russia and cut off Prime Video to Russian customers. I want to bring in Bloomberg's Brad Stone for more on this. Brad, I want to start with the stock splits here. Obviously, we just saw Alphabet do something like this earlier this year. Unlike Amazon, though, to do a stock split, why are they doing this and what does it mean? Well, it's interesting. Uh, Jeff Bezos, for 15 years, seemed to really resist this kind of financial engineering. It shouldn't mean anything, right? One share of Amazon stock at 3,000 is equal to 20 shares at 150. But in practice, um, a lower stock price makes the stock more attractive to retail investors and also employees. You know, you've got a million warehouse workers who have an option of of uh, including equity in their compensation, and this instead of a fractional share, they get a whole share. So there are lots of reasons to do it. And the, and the fact that the stock is down by 8% over the last 12 months, and the fact that investors are responding favorably, they did today and to Google's announcement last month, it's, it's, uh, 
you know, it's evidence for why Andy Jassy maybe wants to rethink some of that orthodoxy at Amazon. Right, improving that accessibility, at least psychologically. I also want to ask you about Amazon's moves in Russia, stopping sending products to Russia, cutting off Prime Video. How significant is this for Amazon? How big a business do, do they have there? And, and who will this really impact? Yeah, I mean, not to call it a nothing burger, but to put it in perspective, no data centers in the country, no offices in the country. There's no such thing as Amazon.ru. If you're an Amazon customer in Russia, you're probably ordering from the website in Germany and, and, and products are getting shipped to you from the fulfillment centers in Poland. So, I, you know, it's limited. Amazon's taking a stand here like a lot of other companies. And to, to the extent that it's impacting Amazon customers, it's probably upper middle class Russian consumers who were, who were using the foreign Amazon website. Okay. Now, third story, big Amazon story today, Amazon being accused of lying to Congress about how they use third party data and have now been referred to the Department of Justice. What does this mean? It, it was sort of an open secret that Amazon, which is very decentralized, you had employees who were breaking, basically breaking Amazon policy and you know, using internal data tools to promote private label Amazon products. And when Bezos and, and some other Amazon executives were hauled in front of the Congressional Subcommittee investigating antitrust, they didn't, wouldn't really own up to it. You know, Amazon's so secretive, they talked around it, they talked about studying the issue. They were being very Amazon-like, and then they've never released any subsequent reports. So you know, the charge here you know, is that they, they lied, they clearly weren't upfront with what was happening you know with the employees who were kind of sticking their hands in the data cookie jar and now congressional investigators want some accountability for that all right well we'll be following that story again amazon shares way up after hours on the back of that stock split announcement are brad stone who of course wrote a couple of books on amazon brad thank you Welcome back to Bloomberg Technology. I'm Emily Chang in San Francisco. Cruise, the autonomous vehicle company majority owned by General Motors, named co-founder Kyle Vogt its full-time CEO. He's back in the top spot since Dan Ammon left Cruise back in December after disagreements with GM CEO Mary Barra. Kyle with us now for his first interview since taking back the helm. Kyle, thank you so much for joining us. So in light of Dan's departure and, of course, your very long history with this company, what is your vision and is there anything that you plan to do differently? Well, thanks for having me, Emily. Fortunately, you know, our vision remains unchanged. We're still working on bringing driverless cars uh, to deployment at scale. And it's been a really exciting year for, year for us. Just in the last few months, we did our first driverless rides on, a, on public roads in a major U.S. city. It's a first for any company. We've got really ambitious plans to scale from here uh, to be in, you know, more locations, more cities, and make a really great product for people. And given the context of Dan's departure, how would you say, how would you describe your relationship with Mary Barra and whether, you know, you both are on the same page? Well, the GM leadership team, including Mary, uh, have been really supportive and we share this vision. Um, you know, it's obvious if you look at the status quo, we're not in a great place when it comes to car accidents in the U.S. and, um, you know, basically transitioning to an electric vehicle fleet across, um, across both personally owned vehicles and rideshare. And we all believe that, uh, uh, autonomous rideshare is the way to get there and a way to get there really quickly. And it's also a really big business opportunity uh, for a company like GM or really any major company uh, who's looking to get into the transportation space. 
Talk to us about Cruise Origin, how production is going, and is there any sense of when we'll see Origin on U.S. roads? Yeah, the Cruise Origin is an amazing vehicle. It's, it's meant for rideshare. So you sit in it, you've got tons of leg room, the seats face each other, lots of cabin space. And so it's optimal for things like shared rides where you might be in there with another person, but we can really drive the cost down when you do those kind of rides. So it's an awesome vehicle. Um, we're doing testing with prototypes right now um, on closed courses. And uh, early next year, I think you may start to see the first production vehicles roll off the line and hopefully go into deployment. Why, in your view, is Cruise, Cruise's technology better than what Waymo has to offer, or Tesla, or Zooks? You know, it's really hard to compare different AV companies. And I think uh, the answer is just, you know, when you can pull out your phone and use one of these products, first of all, we'll know uh, who's ahead in terms of deployment. But then um, also the thing is right now, you can't really compare them side by side. And I do think when you experience this technology, if it's anything like what our first users have seen, they're blown away. It feels like magic. They want to use it again and again. And uh, we intend to differentiate both on uh, the product experience, creating a really great uh, experience that's, that's potentially better than our com competitors, but much better than the status quo uh, using rideshare services. And I think that'll be really compelling. I think people are going to like it. Now, as I understand it, Cruise has at least five permits from the DMV and the CPUC. You can transport passengers without a driver behind the wheel, but you can't charge a fare. Or you can transport passengers and charge a fare, but you need to have a safety driver. Are the regulations just too complicated right now to make a lot of progress? We did a good job on winding the California permit process right there, but you know we're <laughs> one permit away from being able to charge fares and do commercial operation. But as of today, we have people using the app, using the service, um, you know, so we're, we're getting a sense for what those customers are going to do and what they like. Um, and I think while today we're, we're kind of hung up on this permitting process, that's a very ephemeral problem and going to go away. We're going to work with the regulators and get through these things. And uh, then you're just going to see, you know, this, this uh, product start to appear in more places and start to be something that people use, you know, in their daily lives and just going to become normal. I think the discussion about permitting is important today since the first time uh, any company has tried to go through this and get permits from California regulators. But uh, I think that's going to be behind us pretty soon. What's the next big market for Cruise after the United States? Uh, well, we'll see. I think that the priority for us is, you know, look, you know, even in San Francisco, a tech-centric city, people have never seen a car driving around without anyone behind the wheel. You know, there's people on the sidewalk that look at these vehicles and they're like, they're taking pictures, they're looking at them, they're, they're, they're excited, I think, about the future, but it's also, you know, a little bit unusual. And so I think for us, we really want to make sure we nail this in San Francisco, not only uh, in a way that works for the city, but works for riders, and it's really compelling and they want to come back again and again. And then we're really going to put uh, a lot of ammo into this and try to scale it out in a lot of places really quickly. But our goal is to make it work really well and make it work really well here in San Francisco first. Any updates on Dubai? The World Expo in Dubai wraps at the end of the month. And one of the big themes is mobility. Yeah, uh, Dubai has been, uh, or the RTA in Dubai has been a great partner, and we're still on track for deployment there. I think it's a great opportunity to introduce, um, you know, the future of, of transportation to, you know, a city and government that's really excited about doing that. Uh, so we can't wait. So, look, I think the big question regular consumers have is when will self-driving cars, when will self-driving cruises, for example, be on the road and I can take advantage of it. You know, how far out is that more mainstream reality? How many years? Um, well, we're starting small. I think the important thing is to get this working, make sure everyone is uh, responding well to it and the product itself meets expectations. But right now, uh, if you live in San Francisco, you can go to getcruise.com and jump on the wait list. We've already done hundreds of rides with members of the public and these AVs, actually dozens of them, 
are out every single night now carrying passengers around San Francisco. So it's here. It's not uh, you know universally distributed or equally distributed, but it's here in small bits and pieces. And I think it's going to uh, surprise people how quickly that becomes generally available and uh, that many people who live or work in San Francisco get a chance to use it. All right. Kyle Vogt, CEO of Cruise once again, and also, of course, the co-founder. Thanks for bringing your vision to us, Kyle. Coming up, President Biden and crypto, the fine print in his executive order and what it means for the broader industry next. This is Bloomberg. What if everyone at work were an expert communicator? What if every doc, message and email they wrote was perfectly clear and concise? Inbox numbers would drop, customer satisfaction scores would rise and everyone would be more productive. That's where Grammarly comes in. Grammarly is a secure AI writing partner that understands your business and can transform it through better communication. Companies that use Grammarly save an average of 19 days per employee per year. That's because with Grammarly's AI, what used to take a few hours only takes a few clicks like generating an instant first draft in your company voice or tailoring a message to your specific audience and goals. And Grammarly's personalized on-brand writing help is built in everywhere your team works, across 500,000 apps and websites. Plus, it's safe, secure, and already IT-approved. Join 70,000 teams who trust Grammarly with their words and their data. Learn more at Grammarly.com. Grammarly. Easier said. Done. More now on President Biden's executive order on crypto, which sent Bitcoin bouncing right back up. I want to get into it all with our crypto contributor, Shanali Basik. Shanali, this could be kind of a big deal. Yeah, it could be a big deal. And if you see Bitcoin prices, certainly the market thinks it is. If you take a look, you have a more than 9% jump in Bitcoin over the last 24 hours. It is still down on the seven-day period, but a significant lift here, more than the other assets. If you flip up the board and take a look at Ethereum, for example, also getting a lift about 6% or so. But the one interesting thing to me is while those assets have gotten a lift, Tether and stable coins more largely have not seen as much of a lift, are pretty stable on the day, but again, stable on the week as well. So what are the safe havens here? Let's get someone else's take here. We're going to bring in Marty Chavez on this. He is the vice chairman at Sixth Street Partners, really a pioneer when it comes to technology and money. Marty, thank you so much for joining us. There's a lot of criticism about the executive order that came out of the White House. On one hand, it's been hailed as a watershed moment, but on the other hand, it has also been criticized as short on details. What's your take? Sonali, I've, we've talked about this topic before. I've been saying for a long time, the best thing that could possibly happen to digital, regulation, uh, digital assets is the appropriate amount of regulation. Sure, the executive order did not give us a lot of detail. It mostly directed a variety of organizations in the government to do more work and do more study, and that's great. There is, um, we expect, a Treasury paper forthcoming later this year that's going to have a lot more detail. Uh, but I would say uh, that at the root of my concerns, and you and I have talked about this before, are really the stable coins. 
right? The stable coins are a form of currency peg, and currency pegs have not been successful. They work right up until the moment that they don't work, and there's certainly uh, not a lot of detail. I don't, I'm not sure there's any in the executive order about stable coins, and to my mind, uh, the appropriate regulation of stable coins, which I would see as a kind of narrow bank, mm -hmm. so we actually know what are the assets backing them and what are the mechanisms for those assets. I think that's going to be hugely important, and until we have that, I don't know how investable uh, the whole space of digital assets is from my perspective, uh, but once we have a, a foundation for the stable coins that looks like narrow banking and appropriate regulation, I think it's going to be a part of an immensely important, long secular trend, well, the dematerialization of everything. Marty, what about what we're seeing here in terms of investment into things like the Ukraine Dow, the way that investors have really been able to mobilize and raise money at scale uh, when people have not been able to access currency in the traditional way? Well, first, that's not, let's just start by just acknowledge, acknowledging the pure horror of what's going on in, in Ukraine uh, and, and the sympathy, and the sympathy isn't even the word for the suffering that's happening over there. And to the extent that cryptocurrency can partially mitigate some aspects of that suffering, I think it's huge. It does show you that, it, that, that there's ways to move money internationally with cryptocurrency, which we've all known that are interesting, that don't require intermediaries. Of course, it brings up all kinds of concerns about the enforceability of sanctions, and there's all kinds of discussions about Russian wallets and the exchanges, and um, that's complicated. Yeah, I'm really curious about what you think about that and the role that crypto plays here when there are sanctions and really lots of governments around the world trying to restrict the flow of capital. Is crypto so, going to fix or make that worse? So... Restricting the flow of capital, sanctions. Look, this is this is this is something that governments do. Uh, personally, um, to my mind, put like we have heard commentators say uh, the U.S. is not playing fair with the dollar. Well, um, I don't know that playing fair is really what the discussion is about when Russia unprovoked invaded invaded Ukraine. And so, cr cryptocurrencies do provide this mechanism. I think it's important as a matter of sovereignty to have the right amount of regulation. Um, I don't like using the term cryptocurrencies. I don't think they're currencies. I think they're digital assets. The currency is a different thing, and this is something else that I've been saying for a long time. Digitizing the U.S. dollar in an appropriate way that respects identity, privacy, know your client, anti-money laundering, sanctions regimes, regimes that bolsters the Fed's tools for macroeconomic policy and the United States' tools for geopolitical policy, those are, that's hard. And getting that right is really important. But to me, it's not an option. You know, do we want to digitize the U.S. dollar? That dematerialization journey has to continue. It's important for U.S. leadership. It's important as a matter of innovation. And getting it right is extremely Marty, hard. To what yes. extent is it a, a question of national security? You have millions of people who are flocking to China's central bank digital currency as we speak. And I'm wondering if the U.S. doesn't catch up and do the same. To what extent does that start to shift global financial powers over to China? I worry about this a lot, Sonali. Uh, the, the dollar status is the global, global reserve asset. 
is not written in stone. It has persisted for 100 years. Not that the historical pattern needs to repeat, but about every 100 years, there's a different global reserve asset. And, and I've been saying for a few years now, uh, digitizing the US dollar in an appropriate way it's not, is essential. It's not just another form factor, right? To me, that's like saying uh, a starship and a bicycle are just two different forms of transportation. No big difference between the two, right? A digital dollar, potentially a programmable dollar, is a completely different thing than the inert paper dollar that we currently have. The only two forms of central bank money we have today are the notes and Fed funds in Fed master accounts. Introducing another form that is just like the dollar, but it's digital. We don't need the paper symbolizing it anymore. That's really important, but getting the details right, like the know your client, anti-money laundering, what are the right amounts? Can they be removed? Can you apply sanctions? If so, what's the process? Like designing all of this, it has to be thoughtful. Marty. And it's really hard and it's essential. We have just about another minute, 30 seconds here. What about the investability of digital assets? until we get to that regulatory point that you're talking about. Are you comfortable? Are your clients and rivals comfortable with getting into them? No, many, many clients and rivals are comfortable. Um, but when I am thinking about it from, from the Sixth Street point of view, um, it's uh, we see the right amount of regulation as essential. I'll give you an analogy. Before airplanes were regulated and the safety of airplanes were regulated, you were taking your life into your hands every time you got on a commercial flight. And so having all the rules that we currently have about rebuilding the airplanes every so long, often how they have to be maintained in the checklist and all, yes, it was expensive and cumbersome to comply with that, but it was game changing. It right. is the condition precedent for the industry to really grow and to be what it needs to be. And so I would say the executive order is a great step along this journey of creating the appropriate regulatory framework. Once we get that right and we get it right for stable coins, which are the underpinning right. of the current crypto ecosystem, that's going to be a golden age for Marty, digital assets. We're going to yes. have to leave it there, but we want to have you back as we finally see those regulations. That's Marty Chavez, the part, vice chairman of Sixth Street Partners. Emily, back to you. Thank you, Shanali. Shanali Basak there. Marketa just released its fourth quarter earnings, beating even the highest estimates and sending shares jumping in post-market trade. This as the payments company also announced a new partnership with Citigroup to help move commercial cards to mobile wallets more easily. But of course, there's big changes happening in the global payments landscape as Russia's war on Ukraine escalates. I want to talk about all of this with Marketa CEO and founder Jason Gardner. Jason, good to have you back with us. So of course, we've seen Visa, MasterCard, PayPal halting their operations in Russia. What is Marketa's exposure? in Russia and do you have any plans to do the same? Good seeing you, Emily, and thank you for your continued interest in, in Marketa. Uh, actually, Russia is not on our roadmap, has never been on our roadmap. Uh, in fact, we announced our partnership with City today uh, in 40 markets, and, and Russia is not one of them. Uh, so our exposure is pretty, pretty limited. We have de minimis volume within the Ukraine. Uh, however, you know, we, we operate in 39 countries today and a number of those countries throughout Europe, but, uh, but no exposure today. What do you see, though, as the impact of 
global uncertainty, rising inflation, rising gas prices, prices of jet fuel on consumer spending. How is that impacting your outlook ahead? Yeah, there's there's a lot of pressure on consumers, uh, and consumers uh, pay for things, uh, whether using buy now pay later, using Cash App, using Lydia in France, Coinbase. So so we make money when companies or when consumers or businesses spend uh, cards at the point of sale, whether online or offline, through different modalities. It could be a physical plastic card or a tokenized card or a virtual card. Uh, they still have to buy things. So. Our exposure is really, you know, will consumers continue to use buy now, pay later? Will they continue to use on-demand delivery services or expense management services? Uh, we have a strong base of revenue. We ended the year at $517 million in net revenue. Uh, and uh, we have that strong base of, uh, of customers. And let's see if uh, they continue to spend despite all of the headwinds for them. I'm curious what you observed when it came to spending in the fourth quarter and how that is shaping your thoughts on the outlook. Obviously, you know, we're, we're hopefully coming out of a pandemic, but now, you know, what's going on in Ukraine has cast a whole nother cloud of uncertainty over the future. Yeah, there is a lot of uncertainty. Uh, the fourth quarter, buy now, pay later, really uh, was well beyond our expectations. It was 50% uh, growth from even the Q3, uh, which we would kind of expect because we see consumers wanting to use new payment types like buy now, pay later uh, in, the, in the fourth quarter. Uh, we actually did a survey last year of surveying people in both the U.S., U.K., and Australia, and we found that 51% of people had actually used uh, the payment modality before. Uh, we, we don't know if it's going to change. I mean, you're, you're seeing a lot of the same things, you know, unfold every minute of every day uh, in regards to Ukraine and the war, uh, also what's happening in Europe. Uh, we're heading into a lot of uncertainty, especially this summer. Uh, but again, we have this, this strong base of revenue, a strong base of customers uh, who are looking to grow their businesses uh, using our technology and our tools. Uh, we're going to help them go into even more and more geographies, and we're excited about doing that. But again, there's, there's a lot of headwinds for not only consumers but businesses as well. This new Citigroup partnership, how much could this impact revenue? So as we focused as a company, so our strategy was to start with commerce disruptors, uh, companies like DoorDash and Instacart and Affirm and Klarna. Uh, that's where we had the DNA match with developers who were building on top of our platform. We then went into large tech giants, digital banks, and then large financial institutions. They're very slow uh, to make decisions and, and roll out. Uh, we would expect over time they would take more and more advantage of our platform. But this is just our foot in the door. Uh, Tokenization as a service is something we are doing with J.P. Morgan today. Uh, now we've announced with City within 40 markets, and that takes time to go build. But again, this is a foot in the door. We want to do more and more with large financial institutions uh, and building that trust through us working with them directly and our technology is going to help us go and do that. Well, speaking of a foot in the door, how are you looking at Web3 and how do you see that driving growth in your business? Well, we have been doing a lot in crypto, as we've talked about in the past, especially with our partnership with Coinbase. Um, that's really our first step. Um, this idea of decentralized finance or DeFi or, you know, for years I've been talking to companies about using things like blockchain to move transactions. And I, I actually talked about this in, in my remarks I just made uh, in our, our uh, Q4 of 21 earnings call. 
Visa and MasterCard have interconnected the world for companies, whether online or offline, that want to accept payment cards. Um, that is very, very significant. That's a very, very deep moat and a very tall wall for companies that want to go in and build that cross-border capability that they have. So I think this technology is, is here to stay. Uh, we believe in it. I believe in it personally. I spent a lot of time with companies uh, in the crypto Web3 space, a decentralized finance, how we're going to go and build it. It's just going right. to take time. Uh, and then that could be, you know, maybe a, a decade from now, we'll see the changes. Jason Gardner, founder and CEO of Marketa. Thank you, as always, for stopping by and getting off that call. That does it for this edition of Bloomberg Technology. Thursday, we're going to speak to Flexport CEO Ryan Peterson as his company partners with international aid agencies to deliver critical supplies to refugees fleeing Ukraine. You don't want to miss it. This is Bloomberg.